Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG. In this week's podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. We have a couple of guests with us. Welcome uh, to Will Sims and David McKellips. And we are going to chat through several different questions and uh, just get everyone's thoughts on different areas of finance, uh, financial planning for oil and gas professionals. And we'll see where this takes us. Uh, To start us off, would love to hear from both of you. Give us a little bit of an intro. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, David, we can start with you. Sure. So happy to be on here. Thanks for having us, Justin. Uh, David McKellops originally grew up in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I currently work for Williams, a midstream company in oil and gas. I've been here in total about uh, 11 years, primarily and largely uh, commercial and business development roles. Uh, my current role here at Williams is a BD director that's been supporting uh, more, most recently our corporate strategic development organization uh, in, in across a number of different initiatives as far as our gas marketing strategy, including our uh, cross-functional wellhead to water initiative that we currently have going on to to connect our Haynesville infrastructure GMP to our downstream uh, transmission assets, as well as to to get some LNG exposure. So that's my my current role at Williams. And I've been here in Houston for close to a decade. Awesome. Thanks for being here, David. Will, how about you? Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. As I was saying, whenever we're getting set up, um, I feel very hip being on a podcast. So, uh, you know, the box has been checked um, in that uh, circumstance. But yeah, Will Sims, um, I'm likewise from, uh, from Oklahoma, like David, and moved down to Houston in like 2007 uh, out of college. And so I originally started working for a company called Noble Energy that is no longer around. They bought, they were purchased by Chevron. And I left them in 2014 to go work for a private equity-backed platform, Deep Gulf Energy. And we you know, ran that business for four years and um, packaged it up and sold it to a group called Cosmos Energy out of Dallas. And so um, I still work for them, um, and it's been a great combination. So I've been here for four years. And uh, I'm likewise in the business development sphere, like David, uh, on the upstream side, uh, focused on the Gulf of Mexico. So interesting time, interesting few years to be in the business, but it's been very enjoyable. That sounds great. Well, let's dive in. Let's cover some of these questions. First question on the docket. Uh, For both of you, what is your biggest financial worry or concern? Will, you want to go first? I went first yeah, last sure. time. Yeah, sure. You know, I would say, uh, you know, and I think this is a generational thing for guys around our age, just the amount of 100-year floods we've had to live through since we started working. But you think about it, you know, we had the, the 08, 09 housing crisis where the markets blew up. 2014, 15, we had a little bit of a downturn. You've obviously had this uh, coronavirus situation where, there's been a lot of market first, in particular in the oil market, prices going negative. And then, you know, most recently with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you've had a lot of volatility in the markets, excuse me. 
And so, you know, from my perspective, I think it's easy for people in our generation to worry about seeing significant value loss given market volatility. And so, at least from my perspective, I try to put everything on autopilot for situations exactly like this, where you would want to, you know, avoid loss or whatever, because panic selling into markets like this can be very dangerous. So, yes, yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, my worry is the market being down 10% in a day or 20% a day, given black swan events, just because we've experienced so many. Very true. David, how about you? I think Will said it well. As I was answering this question or thinking about this question, Justin, I think it's it's two different phases for me. Will, Will particularly has lived uh, an, an extra crisis in the working world in, in 08 that, that I didn't. But I actually remember in 14, Will might not, sitting down with him and, and his, uh, his leader, Tom Young, when, when Williams was, uh, like everybody else, going through layoffs and there was a da- our first downturn. I'd just gotten married and, and uh, we had we'd actually decided smartly to, to buy a house right there at the first peak uh, before prices kind of fell off a bit. And so at that time, my concern was losing my job and, and going completely belly up. I think now it's probably more morphed. Uh, you know, Will said it well on, on both the losing the opportunity cost of not having, you know, just digging a hole in the ground and, and having your cash sit there while you've got a, a high inflation type environment and you're seeing the market even though it's down uh, here in the last few months, it's still comparatively in the last few years, if you're sitting on the sideline, you've lost a lot of, of value by not having some exposure to equities. So it's really a, a balance of exactly what Will said of, of having that value de- uh, degrade and, and loss from stuff that you've worked hard to build over over different cycles, particularly with oil and gas, but also that uh, that you're being a good steward of your resources and, and are able to grow income and have your money work for you. So I, I think it's still a concern Always, it's going to be to the negative, as Will said, on on having a catastrophic loss, losing an income, and as you know, the the main provider in, in my household having having that go away can sometimes be a bit frightening, as well as as losing material wealth. So that'd be probably the biggest worry or concern. Absolutely, makes a lot of sense. Now, what's interesting about the past twelve years is it has, by and large, been an incredible time to be in almost any industry. Uh, everything has just grown substantially. Uh, but oil and gas has been very volatile. And so most people would categorize oil and gas and, and E&P uh, as, a, as a pretty volatile career. Does that impact the way you think about investing or your own risk tolerance? That's a great question. Will, I might go first on this one. I'm Because I'm, I'm not a true wildcatter like Will, you know, an E&P side going private equity as he outlined in his background. I'm more of the, uh, the midstream toll road, safe, steady, boring business, and while there is uh, obviously an impact and in, in volatility in the midstream space, usually the oil field services and, and EMP hit the brunt of the ups and downs. But all I have to say is kind of impacting my risk tolerance. I, I've always been raised a little bit fiscally conservative. Um, you know, growing up, we, we didn't have a lot of money, but my dad was very responsible and, and taught kind of the value of saving, tithing, giving, um, as well as being you know responsible with your money. And so that... That has stayed with me throughout my life, even in the oil and gas industry, where I'm pri- primarily probably not as big of a risk taker as uh, many that might typically be thought of in the wildcatting oil and gas EMP space. But uh, trying to trying to manage, you know, having having growth uh, in the portfolio, having some ability to to get some dividend exposure in the portfolio, to have your cash kind of working for yourself, 
but also, you know, saving up for, for those rainy days. I think, you know, being on early on talking about the experience we had in 14 and 15 of being newlyweds, both in oil and gas at the time and, and both jobs at risk and just taking on a, the most expensive purchase we've ever made in a, in a mortgage. So uh, it was critical of importance to us to build that rainy, rainy day fund for that same risk tolerance. But I think, you know, as, as for, as we've grown a little bit uh, here in our, our thirties, to have uh, you know, a little bit of a, a bench built up financially, at least on the retirement accounts, having a rainy day fund, it does make the appetite for, for taking some swings, some calculated risks, not just gambling risks, but uh, more, more in play for our household. Absolutely. Will, how about you? Yeah. I mean, I think the way I think about it, I don't think it has necessarily shaped how I go about investing necessarily. But what it has done um, is it's shaped kind of how I manage my personal affairs in the sense that oil and gas companies, given the cyclical nature of our business, have to be conservative if you want to be a long-term going concern. And so for me, as David said, I think it makes planning for rainy days a little bit easier just because we go through them from time to time naturally given downturns. So, you know, making sure you have um, enough saved in a rainy day account to, if there is again, a black swan type event is important. So I think that's how it shaped me. Yeah, absolutely. Now this next question, I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts. Uh, I think our listeners are, are probably going to think I'm very biased um, because the question is, do you think a 40 year old needs a financial advisor? Uh, and even though Obviously, from my end, the answer should be, well, everyone needs to pay for financial advice. Uh, I think it's a lot more nuanced question, and I think there's a lot of room to answer no here. So I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts. Does a 40-year-old need professional advice? I would say, um, and I have to I have to put this up front, you guys did not pay me anything to say this. Um, <laughs> it's my true, honest thoughts. But I actually think it's important for you know, people um, in around our age group to engage professionals in the sense that if you don't start um, on the right track, um, you can really get, you can lose a lot of value over the long term. And we've got a lot of a long, you know, horizon to look at for investments to compound and for taxes to add up and things like that. And so I think engaging with someone like you guys they can take a holistic view on, you know, taxes and insurance and things like that, where you may have gaps you don't even know about yet is very important. Yeah. David, how about you? So I'll, I'll repeat Will's comments that I, I missed the NIL payment for anything that we might answer here. But um, funny you do ask. So I, I probably would have been the guy, legacy guy, uh, whether it was how I was raised or or just probably pure ignorance, who would have said, no, a 40-year-old does not need a financial advisor and someone should be able to prudently manage it themselves. However, it's, it's a great time for this question because I think my viewpoint on this has changed over time. And, and the reason being, and, and Will kind of hi highlighted some of the reasons here is, I think many professionals, just like professional athletes, they all need a coach, even though they're you know, elite in their, in their class and their respective professions. I think everybody needs a little bit of advisement and finances are, are one that everybody has a natural emotional attachment to, particularly in kind of that 35 to 45 year old range where you finally are 
um, you know, producing usually a, a decent income and have some some uh, you know net worth built up versus just being kind of living to to get by in your in your twenties in the first phase of your career. So I think it's important. You know, Will mentioned obviously some of the tax implications. There's those gaps that that those of us that just don't have time to really focus on need teams like you guys and others that can offer the different strategies around diversification, around risk, around exposure to, to different industries to make sure you're not long and, and overexposed to just oil and gas, let's say, uh, estate planning, all the things that can be really critical. As Will said, kind of in this phase where usually people, not, not everybody, but typically are starting families and again, have enough experience in their careers where they're, they're able to, to generate enough wealth where it does make sense. I think it is important to talk to folks and get that expert expertise, again, just with time constraints, with whether it be family or professionally. And then two, just having somebody else that can kind of coach you through that, who, who can take the emotions out of the decision and that kind of fear factor that can either put you in a frozen mode or you have analysis paralysis and you just store cash in a savings account, which we all know just gets crushed in an inflation environment like today. But also isn't just putting you in an overly risky exposure to, to equities or whatever it may be that, that can make you lose some of the wealth you've built. So I, I think it's important, but obviously it's a it's an individual answer for each person. I would say uh, my my view has changed on the need for a financial advisor uh, as as I've kind of hit that thirty five to, to forty range and and knowing uh, the value that having that coach can bring alongside you. Absolutely. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. Uh, I think there's two metrics. The first one is, can an advisor produce more value than the fee they're going to charge? Um, so pretty simple for any uh, purchase decision. Are you going to get more value than whatever the fee is? And then the second item, one thing I tell almost anyone we meet with is nothing we do is rocket science. If you want to spend time to study the particular part of the tax code that's relevant to you, I mean, it's, it's possible for anyone to figure it out. Same with the state law, same with investing. Uh, but I also just took my family to Disney World and I cannot tell you how much money I gave Disney to simply save us time. Uh, I hate waiting in line. I think it's ridiculous to stand in a line to meet Donald Duck. Uh, my kids were getting Donald Duck's autograph. So Disney offers these two or $300 lunches where Donald Duck comes to your table and gives you the autograph. As someone who will pay almost anything to, to save time, sign me up. Um, and so I think those are the two metrics. Is there more value than the fee that's being charged? And then do you want to spend your own time becoming an expert in these areas or would you rather farm it out? I think Will likes, yeah, Will probably likes reading tax law uh, before he falls asleep every night, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm, I'd prefer to leave that to the experts. Yes, makes a lot of sense. Will, is that a, is that typical reading for you? Uh, no, not typically, but I think your point makes a lot of sense. There's just so many different things that need to be mastered to have an effective financial strategy. It's just, it may be overwhelming to master all. You know, with your day job. So I personally think it makes a lot of sense to farm out, as you said. Yeah. And certainly it's it's a matter of as your assets grow, as your income grows and as your family grows, there's a lot more tax and estate planning considerations that go on top of the investment portfolio. So complexity can can determine whether it makes sense or not. All right. Next question. Are you worried about being overexposed to oil and gas stocks? I can go first here. You know, I think there's a, a natural inclination for people that are in the industry to want to invest 
in the space because it's what they know best. And so I think it can be very easy for people to get over levered to the industry in general. You know, from my perspective, I may be boring, but I mainly do target dates or index type investments where you're, you know, you're naturally diversified and you're not going to be levered to one particular industry, be it tech or oil and gas or whatever. But I do think that is for people in our industry, I think that's something that they should think about before they start to you know, invest in individual companies in the space, et cetera. David, how about you? I would say that I'm not worried I'm overexposed. I know that I'm overexposed to oil and gas stocks. So uh, Will, Will said it well. I think the natural inclination, because that's what we know, is to invest in oil and gas. And you know, particularly you know, being in, in the company, having an employee stock purchase plan, and then having you know, sometimes a piece of, of compensation being tied to the equity and, and the company invest also makes you just naturally long. So I've actually been working uh, as part of my strategy and plan on, on timed uh, exits with, with tax impacts there and making sure that We've got all that squared away to try to diversify. So my, my short answer is, I know that I'm overexposed. I think Will said it well, the natural inclination, no matter what your industry is, is because that's your familiarity. You, you know the companies, you know what their strategies are. You're in it day in and day out that that's what we kind of go to. But I, I think that goes back to your previous question of, of why it's important to have a coach or an advisor that's, that's helping you diversify some of that risk uh, for the downturns and, and your Will's approach of having... Uh, different index funds that, that aren't just tied to a particular industry are, are good ways to, to try to, to combat that. Absolutely. How about this one for both of you, Roth or pre-tax? David, you go first. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, is your question around, do we participate in Roth IRAs or pre-tax or is it? Great, great question. So in your 401k, if you have the option and, and not every not every company offers a Roth 401k, some are by default only pre-tax. But if you have an option in your 401k, would you rather do pre-tax contributions or Roth? Following. Yeah. So I do a mix of both. And particularly, you know, for a while, we didn't have uh, a Roth option. It was all pre-tax contributions. The reason I've switched is a little bit of just a hedge of bed of, of not knowing. I know the. I'd love to hear Justin your opinion on uh, you know, whether because I've, I've heard the the point of well you your your obviously your taxable income could be different, but do you really want to be betting on the tax rates 20, 30, 40 years from now, whenever your retirement window is on on what that looks like? And so I've I've always tried for my four hundred one k exposure as a strategy to max out the company match, and I've just split it down the line of of. Uh, both a, a pre-tax and a Roth type exposure there just to, to hedge my bet and not take a position. I don't know what the right answer is. I'm curious. Will probably has more insightful on that one. Yeah. You know, this is something that I have not been very deliberate about, you know, although I recognize for a long time, the power of, of Roth type accounts, I just have not been my previous employers when I was younger did not offer Roth 401s and things that, a lot of people do. It's kind of commonplace today. So I was not able to take advantage of those, you know, early in my career. But what I'll say is, is since then, and I actually listened to, you guys have a very good podcast episode that probably, I forget which number it is, but where you talk about Ross and how to, to really effectively use them. Um, and I listened to that. It was, and it was great. But what I have done is, had pre-tax 401ks. And so what I've used the Roth 
conversion mechanism for is just synthetically buying market dips from time to time. Like I think Justin and I talked at one point, you know, when the when early days of the coronavirus, when the market was, you know, blistered, I think the the S and P was somewhere at between two thousand and twenty five hundred. And I was thinking of ways that you could, you know, buy the dip for lack of a better word. And so at that point, um, I had converted some pre tax to. Um, to Roth dollars and just took the tax hit. And I was extremely nervous about it after I listened to the podcast episode to, to think that I did the wrong thing, but Justin confirmed it was it was a good thing to do. So all that being said, you know, I, I'm probably 50% Roth, 50% pre-tax now. And like I said, I'm not deliberate about it, but you know, if the markets go crazy, I'll think about it. But I think for anyone considering doing conversions or thinking about ways to mix up your your exposure to to Roth and, and pre-tax accounts, I would definitely suggest listening to your guys' podcast on that subject. We need to send Will another NIL payment for that. For yes, that shout out. yes, exactly. <laughs> I think when you think about the Roth or pre-tax decision, it matters how long do you want to work. Uh, now, I will preface this. I think both of your thoughts about having a little bit of tax diversification There are so many benefits to that. In the podcast you mentioned, Will, one thing that we talked about is the Roth was created, uh, gosh, I want to say it was 1990 was when the legislation was passed. But you've got to understand that when those accounts are, are passed through Congress, it takes almost a decade for them to be adopted at all. Um, so Roths didn't start showing up even in, in Roth IRA becoming a normal option until the late nineties. And then 401ks did not start offering Roth until really the past 10 years. And even five years ago, I would say most 401ks didn't have the option. Larger companies all have it, almost all right now. So long story short, if you are 55 today, you're probably looking back thinking, well, tax diversification was not an option. I didn't have the option to contribute to Roth until very recently. Uh, so I think there's huge benefits to doing what you both have done and, and having given yourself some optionality uh, for the future. But the reason I, I say point number one is how long are you going to work? Well, if you're in a really high tax bracket today and you're almost certain that you're going to retire and do no more work at age 50 or 55, well, you you could probably do all pre-tax. Um, and there's ways to structure it where then your lifetime tax rate is, is pretty low. But if you think there's a reasonable chance that you're going to continue to make money well into your 60s, 65, 70, oh my goodness, tax diversification is going to be a big deal then. And so not necessarily a right or wrong answer, but a, a, a fun topic to try and think through how do I how do I maneuver and get my optimal optimal lifetime tax rate? How about this? The generations above us. So next question. So typical boomer generation or even just anyone 10 years older than us, the the typical path has been work 40, 45 years, work full time, go to age 65, 67, and then stop working entirely and do not work another day for another 25 years, be fully retired. Do you think most 35, 40 year olds think that way today? And what does your ideal scenario look like? Yeah, I would say, Justin, you know, look at the generational difference. Like someone like my grandfather jumps out. He worked for city service in Oxy for, for 40, 45 years, as you said, and retired. So it was with one company. I think you see a lot of 
people in their 30s and 40s jumping around quite a bit. And so that is definitely a a generational difference for the younger crowd is, you know, that they may be chasing different things, but we may be chasing different things, but it does seem like there is a lot more movement. But what I think is ideal is I think you're able to really do a lot of research companies these days with the, you know, how flat the world is. And I think you can find a company, um, and I've been lucky to do so, that, you know, you enjoy the people, which is very important. You know, you're aligned with the strategy. And if you can do those two things, I think that it is, at least for me, it's a much less stressful existence and a much happier existence finding a a company that you feel like you can be with long term. In terms of, of retirement, you know, I haven't, I'm so far away, I haven't thought a whole lot about uh, what my plan would be, but uh, I would hope it would be before 65. And um, I don't know if I would want to twilight and consult or or do something, but um, you know, I'm sure I'll be thinking of those as I get closer. David, how about you? Yeah, great, great question. I think we'll hit a little bit the the generational differences. Obviously, with millennials and Gen Z, I think the natural inclination is a bit of of instant gratification, right? And so, you know, Will talked about chasing different things, whether that's a pay bump, whether it's more opportunity, it's a bad experience with a boss that you're not patient enough to to kind of wait out. Uh, I think all those things kind of come into play on what Will was kind of alluding to that that folks are, are chasing. And I think too, it's, you know, Will, Will made a, a mention of how flat the world is. I think the access to sites like LinkedIn, where you've got headhunters actively looking for people that are currently employed, You've got access to information. You've got uh, the n- newer generations also are kind of breaking the taboo where generations before us, the boomers, wouldn't really talk about their compensation or their benefits or you know what what their opportunities are. Now that information is out there, both both from you know kind of the private channels of just people opening their mouths and, and being willing to share things that they weren't before, and also just with with information online. So I, I think it's a combination of that of people. Kind of seeing, hey, look, the, the old way of, of working for one company for your whole life and then retiring isn't it anymore. And I've got access to information to understand what my worth is somewhere else or what the opportunities are somewhere else, what the culture is somewhere else, something that wasn't thought about as much before. Whether, whether that's right, wrong, or indifferent, uh, it, it's the reality we have. And as companies, we have to, to do exactly what Will said is, is find a way to attract and retain that that top talent. And it's not always just with compensation. You know, Will, Will very much hit on a an important thing that I think our uh, the, our generation and the generations below us are looking for, which is enjoying the people you work with, enjoying the opportunity and the challenges, feeling like your work has meaning and value, and also seeing seeing growth opportunity for a career. That's that's what all organizations, whether you're oil and gas or other, are looking for. And you know, COVID has has changed a lot of things financially, but it's also changed the way people are thinking about work. Do you let people work remote? Do you give flexibility? Do you have a firm office or do you just have a desk space like a WeWork at the, the location you show up? So all challenges people are facing, but I think it's relevant to your question of that, that companies will have to adapt to because the, whether, whether companies like it or not, generations now have access to the information and they do think differently than before. For me personally, I'm probably more like Will. I, I like to be somewhere where I have you know, people I enjoy working with and enjoy what we're working on. And having the ability to to see what the the longer term prospects and growth could be are are important. Um, I, I 
I don't know if you guys are Enneagram folks or Enneagram three. So I, I don't like inefficiencies. So, you know, if there's ways to tackle some of those challenges, either big companies like Williams or, or to, to be more efficient in the way we do processes, that's always exciting. But for me, longer term on retirement, yeah, I'd, I'd love obviously to, to have a financial plan that gives the flexibility to walk away, uh, you know, as Will said, probably pre 65. But, you know, I, I don't know how my mindset will change over the next, 20, 30 years uh, of what's important to me, but I know having the you know, balance of, of spending time with my family, uh, but also still using the, the brain and, and trying to solve complex challenges is something that, that is exciting to me. And I think it will be, but I, I don't know what 55 to 65 year old David will think as far as uh, what that looks like. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. This is a, a follow-up question. So I'm interested to hear, do you think, do you think the price of homes has changed this conversation significantly. And, and I mean, to a large degree, this is probably for people that are even five or 10 years younger than us. Uh, but if you're sitting there and you're 28, you're newly married, you want to have kids and you're living in Houston, you want a good school district and you're staring at a $1.2 million home that might even be worse than the average home you grew up in. Do you think that changes the equation? I almost think something has to give there. So either, either, and I'd look to you guys as market experts to tell me what's ahead. But I, I think too, and, and Justin, you, you mentioned the home cost, but also the rising rate cost. So now mortgages are, if you're getting a you know thirty year mortgage, it's going to cost you one point five two x on a monthly basis than it might have uh, a bit ago. But home prices haven't seemed to to waver at least yet. I think it it might push out, and, and really we've been looking like this even even for our generation. It it might push out those that don't have a solid financial plan retirement date a bit further, just because the affordability of, of living and getting into schools. But I, I'm also curious how the mix will be of of folks that are just know they can't afford a house or can't chew off a house, and do they do they rent longer? And maybe the retirement American dream looks a little bit different. You know, you're seeing people now that instead of retiring to a home that they paid off over a 30-year mortgage payment might want to just travel the world. And so do they need to have a steady house? All these questions that I don't have answers for, I'm just kind of throwing up problems, which is what uh, we all we all hate is it's the guy that can throw up problems without solutions. But I don't know that it necessarily changes the, at least generations thinking of they're going to continue to chase things, but it is going to be an interesting dynamic to watch financially and, and how people plan financially for retirement around that. Yeah, I would agree with David. I think I, I feel for anyone that's in that position, as you said, Justin, that's, you know, 25 to 30 and look that would, you know, seeking to buy a first home, because at least in my experience, I was lucky where, you know, there wasn't a significant bubble I felt I was buying into. And then to David's point, I mean, I think the highest mortgage rate that I've had is 4%. And so if you have a combination of, you know, houses from a value perspective are much, much higher than they've been in the past. And then, you know, rates, if they're getting up to six, 8%, it makes it tough. Absolutely. Uh, David, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about this point that you mentioned, but it's a really good point. Just the transparency that we now have in salaries, in, in options, stock options, all of the benefits, there is so much transparency. I mentioned this on a much earlier podcast, but my wife is currently going back to law school. I was blown away when we started this process that if someone works at one of the 80 largest law firms in the country and they're in a major US market, um, you can just look online and if you know what year they are, you know exactly what they make and you compare that. Yeah, it's, 
it's, it's really wild. Um, and you compare that to somebody who graduated college in, in 1980 and they go work at Chevron for their entire career. There may not be a whole lot of transparency, but there's a few things they do know. They do know they're going to be able to buy a house in Cyprus or the Woodlands for $120,000. And then they're going to have this pension and 401k. So they know, well, my basic needs are taken care of. We're able to go on vacations. We're able to buy house, cars. And then I know that there's this huge pot at the end of my career. And it's just totally different now. Everybody knows what everyone makes. If you want to buy a house in a good school district, you're probably staring at an enormous price tag that would make our parents throw up. Uh, and so it just creates a lot more reason to game the system and, and not necessarily take that deal that people took in 1980. It's a great point. And, and I didn't even think on the flip side of how, especially in the oil and gas industry, the, the old pensions used to work. And a lot of companies have rolled out of those, but that used to be a very lucrative pot to keep folks there and, and grandfathered into you, know, you retire with our company and you're going to have lifelong health insurance, which would be more and more important as prices are rising. But without those benefits and the transparency, I think creates that perfect storm of uh, now with that information out there and just the different drive from the generations to seek the, the bright new shiny object is, is kind of the market we're in. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. I'm interested to, uh, it's going to be pretty vague, open, interested, open, open-ended, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Is there an area of standard financial planning advice that you strongly disagree with, whether it's whether it's kind of a, a Dave Ramsey core principle, or is there any area of financial planning that you look at and you just think, no, that's wrong. I, I completely disagree. Well, the one that I had, Justin, in preparation for this discussion has kind of blown up a little bit given the way interest rates have changed so dramatically. Something from what I can, I don't listen to Dave Ramsey that often or really at all, but from what I understand from just general headlines about him is there's this rush to get out of all debt. And, you know, obviously that's a, a good outcome for someone uh, personally, but for me, at least in a low interest rate environment on the mortgage side, you know, where um, I think I'm sitting at, at two and a half percent or something right now, you know, having that, what I'd say, good debt on your personal balance sheet for, you know, a fairly long horizon is not necessarily a bad outcome given, you know, hopefully what you can, can get in the market. So, me personally, I don't mind having that debt um, or, or being in a hurry to pay it off, but that would be something that I guess I would disagree with on, on standard uh, planning advice. Absolutely. First of all, I'll take a little bit of a flip on, on Ramsey. So uh, I always love the healthy debate here. And while I wouldn't say that, I agree with you completely, Will, keeping that 2.5% leverage while you can make much different returns in the market is, is a good move. But I don't think his typical target is probably for, for Will Sims. I think he's trying to, to get people that have built up credit card debt, student loan debt, financed a car that, you know, much higher than two and a half percent that are uh, trying to trying to get them to have some financial freedom in the future. So I think he does change a lot of people's lives in that. Now, I would agree completely. I think the thing that I wish, you know, now we are in the market that I would have probably jumped on was... Uh, trying to, to step up and, and get out of that first home and get into more of a forever home while the, while the rates were low. Because I, you know, I think any, 
we, we probably won't see a you know sub three percent type rate anytime soon, at least maybe maybe in our lifetime. Um, and, and so using using will to your point, something that I grew up in, I probably grew up in the try to have no debt. You know, we paid cash for all of our cars. My parents bought their first house actually in, in cash, and if subsequently got a, mar- a, a mortgage. So they were probably Dave Ramsey followers, which was good for the the household that we were growing up in. But that might have made me a little bit more fearful to take on some of that smart debt that Will's pointing to. So I don't, Justin, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think looking and using leverage just like a business does in a in a responsible or appropriate way and opportunistically is is probably the the advice that I would not have agreed to in my twenties that I would take now is is being a little bit smarter about putting that mix in the portfolio and taking advantage of it when you can. And the other thing I would say, I would I do actually agree with David. A regret I have, and I think that it's it's worth people considering, is that you know when you're when you're buying these things, when you're buying homes, et cetera, you tend to look at where you sit at that point in time and don't consider potential upside, you know, as you progress through your career, et cetera, uh, and make more money that you can afford a little bit more. And so I do wish I would have stretched a little bit earlier on, like with my first home, et cetera. And I know that that's probably not necessarily advice that a, a financial planner would give you, but um, I think it's something to to consider is, is the future you might have. And just the natural evolution of many of the careers in the oil and gas space that you would, you know, five years out, et cetera, it would be a much more comfortable situation than you're imagining at time zero. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think I've mentioned this maybe once or twice. My biggest financial regret, this, this is the worst financial thing I've ever done. My wife and I owned a home in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And this is like 10 years ago. Um, and it just happened to be in basically the greatest location in Fayetteville, right by Dixon Street, right by campus in Wilson Park. And long story short, we moved from Fayetteville and I sold that house. Uh, And we're talking about a house that I put like a $5,000 down payment on. And had I kept that house, we would have like 400,000 in equity today on a $5,000 down payment. And it would have been paid for by rentals through this whole time. You would, you would have probably been profiting off the, off the mortgage as well. That's absolutely right. And then who could have ever imagined that you know, nine years after we sold it, Airbnb is a thing. So I could have probably made three times the amount of a long-term rental doing that. And so I think there's there's kind of two two ends to it. On the one hand, I, I mean, I, I love Dave Ramsey's advice for the most part, um, but it just makes so much sense for the world that, that was 1980, 1990, 2000, where you could have an affordable home and, and do all these things, pay down your debt and invest. And uh, the world's a little bit different today. So on the one hand, it really is a benefit to keep all of those things manageable and to not over leverage yourself. And it is important as as prices continue to soar today. But on the other hand, obviously, you have been massively rewarded. Will, you just mentioned this. You have been massively rewarded if you did stretch on your first home and you were able to make it work uh, because now that home is is worth two and a half times what it was 10 years ago. And and you got it at a... It's probably a sub three percent, three to four percent mortgage rate, which also is a massive reward in and of itself today. Yes, absolutely. And David, to your point, we don't know if we're going to see that again. Uh, Will you mentioned a two and a half percent interest rate? Entirely possible that uh, your kids never see that interest rate. Who knows? 
Um, so this has been great. Uh, David will really appreciate your time today. And uh, if you have any questions, shoot us a message. We're always excited to tackle new topics on the podcast. And uh, that's it for now. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us, Justin. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.